Welcome back to the third season of Suiting Up Varsity, a podcast dedicated to the sound of the band, the smell of popcorn, the feel of an old letter jacket, the sight of teenagers hoisting trophies high above their heads, and most of all, to the grand history and fantastic stories of Nebraska prep sports. Join us as we look back in time at the great moments from a century plus of Nebraska high school athletics. Today, our time machine is touched down in Omaha on 43rd Street near George Norris Jr. High. It's November 10th, 1972, and we are here to watch the eighth installment of the Metro Conference Football Championship playoff game at Berkwest Stadium. The skies are clear tonight, but as we take our first look at the field, it is obvious that rain has been the norm in the River City lately. If we ask, we will find that it has been raining on and off for the last two weeks, and this game has been moved to Burquist from the newer Burke Stadium out west because the turf here was in better shape. Looking down on the field at the mud-covered Bellevue and Omaha Rumble players, that will be hard to believe. When the game began, the defending Metro and state champion chieftains of Bellevue were wearing their signature purple uniforms with white sleeves and pants and silver helmets, and Rummel was dressed in all white with crimson and gold stripes, crimson numbers, and gold helmets. By late in the first quarter when we arrive, those colors show only on the bench-dwelling backups. On the field, it is mud versus mud. The near-capacity crowd of 4,500 fans occupying the large east-side-only stadium showed up tonight knowing they have a chance to see not only the crowning of the first-ever repeat Metro Conference football champions, but the 1972 state champions as well. Coach Bill James and his chieftains enter the game 9-0 and are the only unbeaten, untied team in Class A this year. Besides the conference and state crowns, the Chieftain resume shows they have only lost six games total in the last six seasons. The 1971 state champs enter the Metro game on a 16-game win streak, having not lost since a stumble to Lincoln Southeast in Week 2 of 1971. 1972 has the look of the jewel in the crown of Coach James and Bellevue as the first dominant suburban power in Nebraska high school football. They have already shared two state titles, 71 and 1967, but they have never had that unbeaten, untied, unquestioned consensus state championship. Tonight is that chance. On the other sideline, Rummel isn't supposed to be here at all. Omaha North won the division in 1971 and was the preseason pick to win it again behind future Huskers Tom Davis and James Whiteman. The Viking train hit trouble early, though. In week one, they lost to cross-division rival Omaha South 10-8 on a fourth-quarter safety. Then, in week three, they were tied 20-20 by Southside Catholic School Omaha Bishop Ryan. And two weeks after that, an upset loss to Omaha Benson put North out of the conversation. Benson was led by the nifty running of 5'4", 140-pound sophomore Bobby Bass, who will become the first sophomore in state history to earn all-state first-team honors at the end of this season. That North loss gave the unbeaten Bishop Ryan Knights the inside track for that division, a track made even clearer a week after uh, they tied North when Ryan upset Creighton Prep 21-7 behind the running of Jack Kelly and the quarterbacking of John Schmolsky. It was their first win over the Junior Jays in six years. 
That win lit the fires of school spirit and big hopes on the hilly campus of Bishop Ryan at 60th and L Streets. Entering the final week of the regular season, the Knights were 7-0-1, having just defeated Rummel 20-14, and were ranked number two behind Bellevue, the highest newspaper rating in the history of the school, and were seemingly headed for a Metro and State title showdown with Coach James Chieftains, as long as the Knights could get by struggling Omaha Tech in their last regular season game. On Thursday, November 2nd, the Knights did beat Tech, 22-0, behind three touchdowns from quarterback Schmolsky, but by then, the wheels had come off the Bishop Ryan wagon, not on the field, but off. Early that week, rumors of a challenge to the eligibility of a night player had bubbled up enough to make the newspapers. By game day, Omaha Westside had lodged an official protest with the NSAA about night linebacker and leading tackler Gary Shaddy, who had transferred from Omaha Central to Bishop Ryan for his junior year. The state had scheduled a meeting for Saturday morning to rule on the protest. The World Herald had called the 8-0-1 Knights Metro American Division Championship tentative, and the Westside and Rummel game Friday night had transformed from a game for second place to perhaps a Metro Conference semifinal. Westside, the favorite playing at home, led that game 13-7 in the fourth quarter, and it looked like they were going to be in position uh, to take advantage of any NSAA ruling the next morning against Bishop Ryan. Westside had turned a first play from scrimmage interception of Rummel quarterback Ed Burns into a touchdown and added an 85-yard kick return by Jim Meierndorf for a halftime lead that held through the third quarter. But then Burns took over. The future Husker and NFL player led the Raiders on an 88-yard march with four for four passing, including a 37-yard strike to his star receiver, Jim Calabretto. Running back Jim Morin added a 14-yard run as he built his game-high 101 yards, and Burns finished the drive with a one-yard sneak to tie the game. Disaster nearly struck on the point after, with the game tied when the snap escaped Burns' hands. The basketball All-Stater scooped it up and scrambled to the right before flipping the ball to Calabretto, who reached high above his head and snagged the pass to give the Raiders a 15-13 win and a stake of interest in that NSAA meeting in Lincoln the next morning. Let's take a quick detour to put the Rummel Raiders on our Nebraska high school sports timeline. The modern listener knows that the Northside Catholic School in Omaha is Ron Colley Catholic. In 1972, as the organization of the Omaha Diocese school system was being shaped by the forces of demographics and politics, forces we will see at work in the Southside home of Bishop Ryan as well, the Rummel Raiders, an all-boys school, were just two years from being consolidated with the girls of Notre Dame Academy, which had been operated in the Florence neighborhood by the Notre Dame sisters since 1926, and forming the co-ed Omaha Roncalli Crimson Pride that we know today under the umbrella of the Omaha Diocese school system. Rummel was originally founded by the Brothers of De La Salle, an order that ran schools in Minneapolis and Kansas City, which we know as common Boys Town football opponents in the 1950s and 60s. But before that happens, the Raiders will have their greatest moment of high school athletic glory on that Burquist Stadium field covered with mud and sawdust. 
Rummel's short history began only in 1964, and they had never been in the late contention for a conference title or even finished a season rated in the newspaper top 10. But on this night that we traveled to, it will happen behind their greatest all-time athlete, that quarterback, Ed Burns. Of course, the NSAA ruled against Bishop Ryan on Saturday morning, transforming the night record from 8-0-1 on the field to 0-9 in the record books. We'll hear more about that decision and the long-term effects it may have had in the story of the Bishop Ryan School itself in a little bit. But first, back to that Metro Championship game. Rummel's record goes from 6-3 to 7-2 the moment the Ryan forfeits are announced. That puts them in a tie with Omaha North, whose tie game with Omaha Bishop Ryan also became a win. But the Raiders got the spot in the championship game because the Vikings played in the game in 1971, a pretty common tie-breaking procedure then that has fallen out of favor in sports today. And that's how we find ourselves at Berkwith Stadium watching Burns and his Rummel Raiders taking on Bellevue on that muddy November night. Bellevue takes an early lead when Chieftain All-State back Rod Stovall breaks away for a 16-yard TD. Burns and his teammates respond as the 6'2", 205-pounder finishes off a long Raider drive with a one-yard quarterback sneak. The next Raider drive looks to be fizzling after a clipping penalty is called and Rummel is knocked back out of Bellevue territory and is facing a third and 26 at their own 46. But then Burns and running back Morin make the play of the game and maybe the season. Morin runs an out-and-up pattern that, according to him, worked every time in practice the week leading up to the game, with one small exception, quote, All week I dropped it, he told the World Herald. This time he cradles Burns' perfect toss at the 20 and covers the rest of the 54 yards, just escaping a diving tackle by Bellevue Jr. and future Husker star Monty Anthony putting Rummel up 14-7. As champions usually do, Bellevue responds, driving down the field late in the half and getting a short TD run from their other talented back, Jim Margit. The PAT is the game changer, though, as the kick slides off just to the left, and Rummel still leads 14-13 at the half. From there, the story will be Burns and the Raider offense, as they simply refuse to give up possession of the football. Burns will total 202 yards through the air despite the muddy conditions. Maybe the sawdust that was spread all over the field actually helped. And Rummel would outyard the defending champs 356 to 193. Rummel ball control is especially dominant in the third quarter when Bellevue is limited to only five offensive snaps. The Chieftain defense keeps rising to the occasion at the goal line, though, stopping Raider drives at the 10, the 4, and even the 2. The Rummel defense is even better, though, led by the playmaking middle guard with the echoing name, John John. In the end, Rummel coach Dallas Dwyer, yes, that Dallas Dwyer from the 1957 Lexington State Champs that we chronicled last year on Suiting Up, would praise his whole team but give special credit to his quarterback. Quote, Tonight Ed Burns had his perfect game, the best he's ever had. Dwyer fought off tears as the victorious Northside crowd carried him from the field as coach of the first and only Metro Conference champions in school history, just a year removed from a 3-6 and six mark when Burns was a junior. Quote, We've been fighting for four years and we finally made it, Dwyer exclaimed. We beat the number one team in the state. 
They were 9-0 and and we beat them. That's great, isn't it? It was great not only for Dwyer, Burns, and the Raiders. As 8-2 and Omaha Metro champions, they would get consideration as state ratings champs. But though Bellevue had been the only Class A school with a perfect record, they hadn't been the only unbeatens. New to Class A suburban school, Millard, had lost only to Bishop Ryan though that was a sound 28-0 thumping, and had that black mark erased by the NSAA decision. The Indians still had a tie against two-win Beatrice counting against them, along with a schedule that just didn't stack up against the more established competitors for state recognition. That Millard schedule was built around the new space race-inspired Apollo Conference, which in 1970 was formed with three Northeastern schools, Norfolk, Columbus, and South Sioux City, Beatrice, and three suburban schools just joining Class A, Millard, Papillion, and Ralston. The Apollo lasted until 1977 when those suburbs jumped to the metro. Down I-80 and Lincoln, though, there were two unbeatens, two teams which had played to a 7-7 tie way back in September, who now found themselves climbing the ratings despite having checked in their football gear a week, week earlier. Lincoln East and Lincoln Northeast. Suddenly, that September tie game was at the heart of a mythical state title conversation and the very real possibility of Nebraska finally enacting a state playoff and overtime system. Northeast coach Bob Ells was still second-guessing himself for an early fourth quarter, fourth down decision in that game. The Rockets controlled field position in the second half of this defensive struggle in which neither team would surpass 130 total yards for the game, and both first-half TDs were set up by interceptions. Early in the fourth quarter, Northeast had capitalized on a couple Spartan penalties and was fourth and goal at the East Six. Instead of asking kicker Mel Knopp to try a 23-yarder to break the 7-7 tie, the Rockets went for it, and their pass fell incomplete. It was the last legitimate scoring threat of the night. East never got beyond its own 41 in the second half and spent most of its snaps inside its own 20. Northeast would try a last-second field goal from 49 yards, twice what the earlier attempt would have been, but it fell 10 yards short and the game ended in a tie. Little did anyone know then that it would also lead to a split state title. But that's exactly what happened. Both major newspapers split the crown between Elza's Northeast and Lee Zenick's East, though the Associated Press vote of the state's newspaper men gave the Spartans the title by a razor-thin margin. There were lots of attempts to compare the Northeast and East schedules and margins of victory, but every time the two appeared as even as that 7-7 score indicated. Bellevue finished number three in both papers, right in front of Rummel's Metro Champs. Once tied Apollo Conference winner Millard and the four-loss Big Ten champions Fremont were slotted in the second five in all the ratings. By December of 1972, this complicated and unsatisfying finish to the football season would create real movement in the long journey toward a Nebraska State football playoff that had really only produced talk, excuses, and objections for two decades. In December of 1972, at the Nebraska Coaches Association Convention in Kearney, the football coaches of the state endorsed a specific system for postseason playoffs and called on the NSAA to implement it. It will take three years, but the momentum of the 1972 ratings conundrum will finally produce a playoff system. It wasn't just the big schools that had ratings dilemmas. 
The Class B championship race in the fall of 72 also made a pretty good argument for developing a playoff system. Four teams completed their season unbeaten, Omaha Gross, Seward, Gretna, and Lexington. These four teams didn't play each other and had no common opponents. From the moment early in the season when the defending champions of Fairbury were upset by Twin Rivers Conference foe Nebraska City, the top of the Class B ratings was full of questions and conjecture. Lexington and Seward had the reputations of the Southwest and Central 10 conferences on their side vouching for their strength of schedule. On the other hand, Gretna's membership in the Capital Conference hurt the Dragons because it meant a lot of Class C teams on the green and gold schedule. Of course, it had only been a short time since Gretna itself was a Class C team. The Dragons' best win was probably a week two comeback against Norris when they trailed the Titans 22-8 at halftime. The Dragons scored 20 straight points in the second half in front of a Nebraska assistant head coach named Tom Osborne, who the Journal Star noted was in attendance. Other than that, wins over Valley, Arlington, and Raymond Central just didn't do much to remove the ratings needle. Even games against a couple of teams that would join Gretna and Norris in 1980 to form the now powerful Eastern Midlands Conference, Waverly and Elkhorn, weren't able to help the Dragons make ratings hay in 1972. Both papers slotted them forth. Omaha Gross Catholic was in a different situation. They weren't just new to Class B. They were just new. This was the Cougars' fifth football season since the Omaha Diocese opened the school just a couple miles south of Bishop Ryan in 1968. And that involves some of the politics we'll talk about when we finally finish the Ryan story eventually. The gross schedule included three Iowa teams, which never are given much weight in Nebraska ratings, and three games against the small diocese schools in the older parts of Omaha, Cathedral, Holy Name, and Paul VI. The games the Raiders seemed to give the most weight to were the Cougars' 42-7 win over Omaha Northwest, then a second-year Class A school which had not yet joined the Metro, and a 26-0 shutout of Lincoln Pius X. The best argument for Gross as state champ was probably that those seven points scored by the Huskies of Northwest were the only points given up by the Cougars during the entire season. Gross didn't have any great wins, but they had shown dominance over the schedule they had. Once the Raiders had decided Gross had dominated their way into the conversation, it was time to parse the strength of Lex and Seward. Generally in this era, and in the couple decades preceding it, Lex's Southwest Conference would be given the nod over the Central Ten when Top Tens were drawn up. In 1972, though, there was a wrinkle. The only team to put a legitimate scare into the Minutemen was Ord. The Chanticleers led Lex 28-14 in the fourth quarter before Lex rallied for a 32-28 Week 8 win. That same Ord team had fallen twice against Central 10 Conference foes Central City and Albion. Seward had beaten Central City 20-12 to open the season, and their matchup with the Albion Cardinals in the league playoff game in November opened the possibility for the Blue Jays to prove to people who practice the reciprocal property of football scores, and in the football ratings era, that was almost everyone, that they deserved to be slotted above Lex. Seward hosted that Central 10 playoff and was hoping for a strong performance. They got a great game, but not a lot of ratings juice. 
They actually trailed the Cardinals 28-8 in the fourth quarter before quarterback John Seavers took over. He led a quick TD drive that ended with a twist, a halfback pass from Brad Kai to Cork Hagermoser, and then the Jays converted an onside kick. Seavers struck again quickly, hitting future All-State basketball star Bob Sunvold for a TD. Sunvold, a sophomore in 1972, then made the play of the game, intercepting an Albion Cardinal pass with just two and a half minutes left and Seward still trailing, 28-22. By the way, Missouri and old Big 8 basketball fans will recognize that Sunvold name. Sunvold is the older brother of Missouri legend and NBA player John Sunvold, who spent a chunk of his childhood in Seward before prepping in Blue Springs, Missouri. Bob Sunvold is now head basketball coach of the Division I Missouri-St. Louis University. With time running out, back in 1972, Seavers, of course, found Sunvold again, this time on a 64-yard bomb, and the game was tied. Ray Wobkin nailed another PAT, and the Blue Jays were 10-0 conference champs. But the close call was too close for the Prep Raiders, and none of them felt it allowed the Jays to pass the Minutemen. The final Class B ratings in both the Omaha and Lincoln papers were number one, Lexington, 9 and 0 Southwestern Conference champs. Number two, Omaha Gross, 8 and 0 Independent, which had outscored its opponents 354 to 7. Number three, Seward, the 10 and 0 Central 10 champs. And number four, Gretna, those 9 and 0 Capital Conference champions. It's easy to see that those four would look like a perfect four-team playoff bracket to those Nebraska fans, writers, and coaches who were inclined to support such a system. As I said, 1972 played a big part in pushing that system forward. There were at least a couple Class C schools that would have joined those wishing the playoff system was already in place. Newly consolidated Sandy Creek, in Clay County, went 10-0 in just its sixth season of football, winning the Mid-Nebraska Conference playoff with a 7-2 road win over another fairly new consolidation, Class B, Grand Island Northwest. The Cougars were led by All-State lineman Steve Kluver. In the Northeast, Scribner and All-State tackle Reed Muller claimed the always tough Husker Conference with a playoff win over Class B Wayne, 12-0, snapping the Blue Devils' state-long 20-game win streak. The Trojans had rolled to nine straight wins themselves after a season-opening defeat by North Bend. In the Central Platte Valley, Gibbon went 8-0-1 and captured the Lou Platte title over previously unbeaten neighbor Shelton with a last-second TD pass, but the Buffaloes couldn't climb higher than sixth in the ratings. All these unbeatens were looking up, in the World Herald ratings at least, at Coach Ed Henfler's Grant Plainsman. Grant was 8-0-1 with a tie to Class B Ogallala on the season's opening night and a decisive 34-7 season finale win over previously unbeaten Medicine Valley. Grant also had a pedigree. This was Grant's 12th unbeaten season under, under Hentfler. The Plainsman star was in Mark Sparks. The Lincoln newspapers, though, put Grant at number two and gave the Class C championship to 10-0 Hebron. The Bears had won the conference that Sandy Creek will eventually join, the Southern Nebraska, with a 15-0 shutout of Tri-County. The Bears had an all-state lineman of their own in Dan Miller. There were few questions, though, in Class D. 
where Falls City Sacred Heart was the consensus champion. The Irish were 10-0, dispatching previously unbeaten Elmwood 37-0 in the Galaxy Conference title game. Sacred Heart gave up only 10 points all year, none of them against their defense, only a safety and an interception return. The purple and gold Hildreth Greyhounds were 9-0, but couldn't match the Irish schedule or dominance. Likewise, Farnham was the pick of both papers in the eight-man ranks. The Greenbacks, now, how about that nickname, won both the High Line and the Southern Border Conferences, behind the blocking of 225-pound All-Stater Randy Edson. Adams, Hampton, and Fort Calhoun all posted unbeaten seasons in eight-man, but had to settle in behind the Greenbacks. Brady, whose only loss was to Farnham, rounded out the top fives. Another unbeaten, the 9-0 Republican City Warriors were relegated to second five status because of a weaker slate, but did land end Jerry Ott on the consensus eight-man All-State team. The last time I was in Republican City, the old concrete stands of a football field were still standing. The area had been repurposed for softball. I wonder if it's still there. The cross-country state championships in 1972 were the first to be held at the current venue, the Kearney Country Club. This fall's state meet will be the 47th in Kearney, making this the longest reigning current state championship venue in Nebraska by far. Omaha Central captured the Class A race in 1972, despite the Eagles' top finisher, Clyde Stearns, not coming in until the 11th spot. A pack of three Central runners at 17, 18, and 19 clinched the title for the Eagles. Boys Town's Barney Hill added the state individual title to his Metro Conference win. Trans-Nebraska team champion Lincoln High finished third behind the team that had also bested them at districts, Lincoln Southeast. Metro champion Creighton Prep finished well back at 10th. At 8th was Omaha Burke, which along with Central had captured the division championships of the Metro. In the early 70s, the two Metro divisions ran complete round-robin dual meets in cross-country during the season. Big Ten champion Alliance was a favorite in Class B entering that meet, but the Bulldogs would finish third behind Ogallala and Plattsmouth. The Indian championship was keyed by individual winner Ron Galvez. Mitchell placed three runners in the top 15 led by Rodney Brown at eighth to outpace runner-up Hebron in the Class C race, which was open to all Class C and D schools. That robbed the Bears of a chance to hang football and cross-country banners in the same fall season. Juan Carrizales of Morrill was the individual champion, finishing two seconds ahead of Jeff Tracy of Ponca. In tennis, Creighton Prep swept the Class A titles, with Matt Iwerson capturing singles and Joe Cleary and Toby Cudahy teaming up for the doubles crown. Iwerson was just a junior and would win his third straight singles title in 1973. Columbus won the Class B team championship by qualifying for title matches in both brackets. Bill Roach of Beatrice captured the singles crown, while Bruce Bamford and Rick Westerlin of Kearney repeated as doubles champions. Number two singles and doubles brackets at state tennis won't be added until 1976. Which brings us all the way back to football and that Omaha Bishop Ryan story. Once the newspapers had processed those hectic final weeks 
and split the title between the two 8-0-1 teams, East and Northeast, there was still a reckoning to have on the Omaha campus of Bishop Ryan High, where the Knights on the field record had been identical to those state champions, but would go into the official record not as the best season in Knight history, but as a worst ever 0-9 after the NSAA forced forfeits. This had been the 15th fall of football and school for the Progressive High School at 60th and L Streets and should have been one of its athletic high points, maybe the start of another golden age. But instead, it serves as an inflection point that is hard not to interpret as the beginning of a decline which will lead to the closing of the school in 1983. Next week, we'll take a big picture look at Bishop Ryan so you can see what I'm saying. The school that was born amidst the baby boom-initiated school expansion of the 50s and 60s would close by 1983, and its great athletic triumphs would disappear into just the history books. Next week, we'll talk about Omaha Bishop Ryan High. That's it until our next episode of Suiting Up Varsity. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at SuitUpVarsity where we've had a lot of fun posting old pictures and notes about Nebraska high school sports history all through this last summer. Or see if you can revive our Facebook page at facebook.com slash suitinguparsity. Or check out our hopefully soon-to-be-developing website at suitingupvarsity.org. When you get to any of those spots, you can ask questions about Nebraska high school sports history, leave suggestions for future episodes, Tell us what you think about the fall of 1972 or answer this episode's trivia question. What two legendary Class A football coaches retired before the fall of 1972 and who replaced them at what schools? We hope to hear from you soon. Also, if you like this podcast, take time to rate us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or wherever else you find your podcasts. It really helps others find our show. This has been Suiting Up Varsity, Season 3, Episode 1, written and produced by me, Greg Mays, technical and research assistance by my brothers, Tate and Trent Mays, helpful audio advice and encouragement from my friend Chris Shukai, and as always, dedicated to Jerry Mathers, the godfather of Nebraska high school sports history and the inspiration for this podcast. Suiting Up Varsity is the anchor show of the Nebraska Varsity Network. Copyright 2018.